A warning for our listeners. This story contains descriptions of violence, so please take care while you listen. If you really want to get into the Halloween spirit, New England in the fall is the perfect place to visit. You've probably heard of Salem and their burning witches, but just a stone's throw away is the tiny town of Fall River. Tucked away into a sleepy corner of Massachusetts, there's Gothic-style buildings and old oak trees. We're just kind of driving around the town right now. Um, And it's, you know, sort of a classic little New England town vibe. Classic, until you notice something sort of strange. The name Borden pops up everywhere. It's on buildings, on street signs. Now we're on Borden Place, uh, separate from Borden Street. (laughs) Borden, Borden, Borden. Are you thinking, where have I heard that name before? Well, it might have been skipping rope on the playground. Charming, isn't it? And this rhyme, this gory schoolyard ditty, well, it's based on a true story. The legend goes that in a crime of passion, a 30-something Lizzie Borden hacked her parents to death in their stately home using an axe. Well, technically, a hatchet. Some call it the prototypical American true crime story. Over a hundred years later, people are still obsessed with this case. In part, because it's never been solved. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. For spooky season, we're bringing you one of the first true crime sensations in America. It all began on a hot summer day in 1892, 130 years ago, when Abby and Andrew Borden were brutally hacked to death in their Massachusetts home. The double homicide of the two wealthy New Englanders quickly became the media sensation in America. All because the victim's daughter, the seemingly sweet, prim Lizzie Borden, was accused of wielding the bloody hatchet. Today, the house is still haunted by the ghosts of the past. I would know. I stayed the night. I'm like honestly scared to look in the mirrors. I'm like worried that someone's gonna be standing behind me. (sighs) We'll take a whack at the legend of Lizzie Borden after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, so here's my deal. When I first learned about this Lizzie Borden story, I was very hesitant to tell it. Frankly, true crime isn't really my jam. When handled poorly, I feel like the genre can veer into this territory of exploiting real-life violence for entertainment. But listen, I get that it's popular. I mean, come on, I work in podcasting. But I don't know, guys. The ethics of it are just a little too tangled for me. So setting off to tell a story about a double homicide, even one from a century ago, it just didn't sit well with my spirit. So I wanted to lean into the discomfort and talk to some folks in this true crime world, try to understand the appeal of it, and maybe why I have such an issue with it. Luckily, we'd found a real deal Lizzie fan, someone who'd remembered her name from the infamous nursery rhyme. Growing up in Maryland, and we used to skip rope to it, so I knew who she was, but I hadn't gotten the Lizzie tizzy, I guess you could call it. This is Shelley Dietzik. She's been a Borden buff for over 30 years and worked at the Borden Murder House in Fall River, Massachusetts. She spends about two hours a day poring over the details of the well-documented case. The witness statements, court transcripts, and trial materials, they're all still available. For 18 years, Shelley even gave tours at the Lizzie Borden house, where the double homicide occurred. She says there's nothing like being in the actual place. The crime scene's still there. You can spend the night there if you want. You can lay on the sofa. You can pose with a hatchet. You can reenact the crime with your family. You can run down the cemetery, and there they all are, side by side, the victims, the accused murderess, they're all there. And, and it makes it real. And it was a hell of a crime scene. The first body to be found was 70-year-old Andrew Borden, Lizzie's father. His face is a pulp. One eye is hanging out by the optic nerve on his cheek. It's been bisected. And the blood is still running. It's bright red and it's running. A little while later, as police and spectators started to swarm the house, Abby, Andrew's wife, was found in the upstairs guest room. It's terrifying. The body of Abby Borden was obliterated. And there were only two people in the house at the time of the murders. The maid, who was in and out cleaning, and Lizzie Borden. Lizzie says she didn't hear anything, didn't see anything. This is very fishy sounding. Fishy indeed. It's hard to imagine that two people could be bludgeoned so brutally without notice. But none of the neighbors heard a thing on this very busy street either. Today, that same street has stayed busy. But now, it's with a gaggle of tourists. There's people coming out. Yeah, of this there's a couple people hanging out. <laughs> 
Following Shelley's lead, my producer Julie Carley and I booked a tour at the place where it all went down. When we walked up to the front of the house, we were greeted by a sign. Welcome to the historic Lizzie Borden House, top 10 haunted places in America. Open daily for tours and overnight stays. Visit us in the gift shop behind the house and next to it is a handy little QR code with a pair of hatchets in the middle. The Lizzie Borden mania oozed out of the house's walls. Oh, oh, a teddy bear with a hatchet. Sure is. What? And a, and a, wow, and an embroidered piece that says, what is home without a father? (laughs) The place was wrapped in peak grandma core aesthetic. Yeah, everything is so, it's like, you know, floral wallpaper, floral carpet, floral upholstery on the seats. Assuming your grandma was really into gory murders since every few inches was some sort of bloody axe embroidered onto a pillow or some shit like that. It felt less like an old Victorian home and more like a Lizzie Borden museum slash theme park. They even have a gift shop. So this is, I guess this is the um, shed where Lizzie was supposedly doing stuff at the time of her parents' murder. It's a dream for any Borden stan. Hats, bobbleheads, I survived the Lizzie Borden house t-shirts, you know, the standard fare. And then there were also some questionable choices. Oh, oh my God. Death certificates in the bathroom, wow. Sure, why not, right above the toilet. That's a metaphor. That's a metaphor. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, why did I come here again? Part of me was excited to see what this place was all about, who makes up this Lizzie fandom. But a larger part of me was like, okay, this isn't such poor taste. What if this whole leaning into discomfort exercise ends with me being like, this is fucked up as expected, and I just knowingly participated in a fucked up thing. Now I have Borden blood on my hands. But before I could really start spiraling, it was time for the tour. Our tour guide, Emily, really set the scene of what it was like that summer in 1892. We weren't allowed to tape the tour, but we learned all about how this double homicide took the nation by storm. So let's go back in time to when the newspaper headlines were set ablaze. A rich man and his wife killed stealthily at home. Double axe homicide in Fall River. Borden's brutally hacked to death. Man and wife killed. And not one clue left by which the murderer can be traced. In 1892, Lizzie was 32 years old, with light brown hair and striking gray eyes. And some of the townsfolk found it hard to believe that their little Lizzie could be a vicious axe murderer. She was a Sunday school teacher for crying out loud. And everyone knew that killing people with axes, women simply didn't do that. For Shelley, the time period is one of the most important pieces when thinking about the case. You have to sort of get the late Victorian mindset to wrap your head around the expectations of women in those days, the dominance of, of males, the sort of life a person like Lizzie Borden would have lived. Um, 
she was in that upper middle class where she didn't have a lot to do all day except good works and church. Despite the disbelief from many townspeople, Lizzie was quickly arrested, charged, and put on trial for murdering her parents. When her case was presented and the evidence was made public, well, their opinions of sweet Lizzie started to change. And I have to tell you, people lost their mind trying to get in to hear this. Shelley says the public hearings turned the local story into a national sensation. Women packed lunches and came in you know, with sandwiches and pies in their purses to get a seat so they didn't miss a thing. A lot of them were women. You know, this, this was hot stuff, and it was sensational. Each day, a new piece of salacious evidence was revealed. Let's just say the tea was scalding. The case against Lizzie seemed pretty strong. Police supposedly found out that she had bought prussic acid, a.k.a. cyanide, the day before the murders, that she had burned a bloody dress, that she hated Abby Borden, who was not her biological mother, but rather her stepmother. And when Lizzie went on trial in 1893, the nation read the dailies in suspense. It's like TMZ when we turn our TV on, you know, scandal, juicy. And it went wide. It had so much human interest. You know, this was just a woman. What? A hatchet? She kills who? What? Her father? And the stepmother? Oh, my goodness. Lizzie's case was the trial of the century. The 19th century, that is. You in your kitchen in Ohio or California or Georgia could follow along every single day. And what does Lizzie look like today? What is she wearing? Oh, she's holding a fan up to her face. Oh, she's smiling. Oh, she looks guilty, don't you think? You know, gossip, 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 gossip. (gasps) To many, Lizzie was looking extremely guilty. But her lawyers seemed to have an answer for every suspicious detail in the case. Lizzie did admit to burning a dress but it was because it had been stained by paint, which may have given the appearance of blood. And anyway, the investigators had previously searched the home and likely would have noticed a blood-soaked dress. They didn't find anything. As far as the cyanide goes, her defense said she used the stuff all the time to clean her sealskin cape. And the autopsies never showed any evidence of poisoning. But really, for some... The case wasn't even about the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden at a certain point. It became political. The suffragettes rallied behind her. Women's rights people in its infancy rallied behind her. Her ministers, her church, the Borden clan. For the suffragists, the real issue at hand wasn't whether Lizzie killed her parents or not. Rather, some of them argued that because Lizzie was a woman, she couldn't get a proper shake in the justice system, since a jury of her peers was impossible. Women at the time could not vote, let alone sit on a jury. And underneath all these arguments, 
was the fact that a rich white woman could be sentenced to death if she was found guilty. That would have been an unthinkable fate, especially in an area where a small group of wealthy native-born Protestants were lording over a foreign-born population, many of whom were Irish Catholics. After a two-week media circus at the local courthouse, the case was decided. Free from guilt, Lizzie Borden acquitted by the jury. Acquitted of the horrible double butchery. Not guilty. So say 12 good men and true. One reporter at the time wrote, the dignity and the decorum of the courtroom vanished. A cheer went up, which might have been heard a mile away, and there was no attempt to check it. As for Lizzie, they noted that her head came down upon the rail in front of her, and the tears came. So, that was it. The verdict came in 1893, almost a year after the murders. And Lizzie just went home. Though she lived as a social outcast until her dying day in 1927. Standing in the Borden's house after more than a century, all of this still felt so fresh. Shelley was right. It really was like stepping into a time machine. And you really could pretend to bludgeon your loved ones on a replica of the very couch that Andrew was murdered on. They give you, like, Andrew's face, like, on a stick that you can hold up in front of your face, and then, like, a, like a plastic bloody hatchet. Um, so you too can pretend like you're getting axe murdered on a couch. A little photo op opportunity. They hand you a photo opportunity video. that I may have taken advantage of, yes. Not saying I'm proud of it. I was trying to get into the spirit of this place. You know, when in Fall River. If you look at the photo, I'm smiling. But one of those, she is clearly uncomfortable smiles. Our tour guide, Emily, is standing above me, wielding the plastic hatchet. And throughout this whole tour, I'd keep having whiplash from weird, uncomfortable moments like this to other moments of genuine fascination, like being able to see Lizzie's own handwriting scribbled onto the pages of her personal books, or seeing old family photos, Lizzie as a toddler. These personal human touches a reminder that these were real people with real lives. I almost felt connected to the Bordens. I, I'm curious, I'm interested, but I don't feel like I can express joy. I don't think I should. I don't think I should. Not, and I'm also not ex experiencing joy, but it's just like things are being presented in a way that's like, ooh, and this and that, and this and that. And like, usually I would be like, oh, hell yeah, like, let's go. And I'm like, I can't get to that level. Because? Because it's, we're talking about a real life double homicide. <laughs> but as day turned into night, so did the energy in the house. It went from a true crime theme park into something more haunting. All right, Simone, are you ready? I'm, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> it's 8.35. Okay. And what are we about to do? <sighs> we are about to go ghost hunting at the Lizzie Borden house. <laughs> After the break, 
an unexpected connection at one of the most haunted houses in America. Welcome back, my Lizzie lovers, my Borden buffs, my double homicide divas. Okay, that, that last one might have crossed a line. Before the break, we learned all about the case against Lizzie Borden. The 1892 hatchet murders she was accused of took the nation by storm. And since then, the interest in the gruesome mystery has not let up. Now... While the true criminess of it all did bother me, when I heard that the Borden house was also a hotspot of paranormal activity, I have to admit, my ears perked up. Because, confession, I totally believe in ghosts. I believe that energies linger. I believe you can contact the other side. I believe those experiences are indescribable, ineffable, impossible to capture. And yet, here I was trying to do just that. I wanted to see if there really was anything, or anyone, still lingering. And if so, could we connect with them? I clearly wasn't the only one with this ghostly curiosity. As the sun set, the house began to fill with other overnight guests. I wondered who they were, where they had traveled from, why they'd voluntarily spend the night at a haunted murder house. Before our guide Emily left for the night, she gave us a nice little explainer on how to use the ghost hunting equipment. How it's used in a paranormal sense is hold some right alongside you, okay? So when it got dark, we were ready. Okay, here we go. With our specialty ghost hunting equipment, we started in a room way up in the attic. All right, Simone, are you ready? <sighs> I'm, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> the gabled ceiling cramped us up together, tight next to the bed. The first thing we noticed was a bronze crucifix above the headboard. Is that good or bad? Does that protect you? Um, Just make sure that doesn't turn upside down. <laughs> Keeping our eyes on the crucifix, we pulled out our equipment. S-Box. We walked through the house using a radio scanner. It's basically a small radio and it shuffles through the AM and FM frequencies for words and phrases that might be coming through from the great beyond. All right, radio test negative. When that didn't work, we moved onto a pair of two bronze rods that the ghosts can control. If you are here, please cross these rods. That'll be a yes, yes, Cross the rods. Um, Maybe to get them to feel more comfortable, you can say what your intention is. Oh, that is a good question. You know? Okay. So, <laughs> um, how to say this? Okay. We are just two people, and our intentions are really just to explore this house and and to see if anybody is present. There's really no motive beyond that. But again, 
no luck. We wanted some kind of contact to feel some sort of connection with that indescribable, ineffable presence. And then, after 45 minutes, something changed. Hi. A squad of people showed up from upstairs. At first, they seemed like a group of old friends, but we quickly found out otherwise. Do you guys know each other? No. No. Oh. <laughs> we just met them because we're neighbors upstairs. We're neighbors upstairs. Which rooms are you guys staying in? These people were also staying the night in adjacent rooms upstairs. And within a couple of minutes, Julie and I also became quick friends with this group. We talked about all their haunted experiences, all the places they've traveled to in order to commune with the beyond. Places like Sleepy Hollow and the Hotel from The Shining. But even these experienced ghost lovers struggled with the real-life tragedy that brought us all here. The whole thing with the murder, it's, it's sad. Because obviously any loss of life is sad, you know, regardless of why or what. But um, the historical part of it being like an unsolved mystery, you know, that still to this day they can't figure out. Um, I don't know. I think that's more what I'm drawn to than, you know, the murder part of it. Yes. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Shelley Dietzik and her community of Borden buffs who gather around this 130-year-old cold case which is part of the paradox of true crime. It's gory and violent and shows the worst of humanity, but it also brings people together in the mystery and empathy with both victims and perpetrators. Kind of like what was happening with this group of five people who we eventually gathered with in the sitting room. It's the room where Andrew was murdered, but it was also the most spacious one in the house. Our first collective decision was to put away the Andrew mask and bloody hatchet used for the photo op. They were still sitting on the sofa from our tour earlier in the day. Oh, nice. okay, I'm going to remove these because I feel like these are offensive. <laughs> <laughs> a little. That's not good. A little offensive. Yes, yes, very offensive. What kind of person would take a picture like that? <clears throat> then we turned on all of our ghost hunting equipment. Word catchers and radio scanners all buzzing as we sat in a circle. We talked about stuff I don't even talk about with my friends. Do you guys think we're crazy because you're, like, historical, like, fact-based? Because I sometimes think I'm a little crazy. (laughs) I think, like, there are just certain things that, like, we just can't measure and we just can't observe and we just will not get, like, definitive, you know, evidence for and this feels like one of those things and I think those things can coexist right like you can have the hard facts and you can have the unexplained and I think it's about trying to reconcile those two things and in the end we found out one of the main reasons all these people came to this house in Fall River Massachusetts Uh and I think that it's almost like a we want to help people like and we just want to like if that means connecting with someone who's not necessarily here and we help them. And I don't know, it sounds silly, but it's, I think that that's, true, I think it's, it's true. Yeah. What do you want to help with in this instance? Because the, the specifics are very, you know, well known, right? Mm. Someone was hacked to death right there. I don't think there's any help in that. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it is what it is. Maybe for like some kind of closure mm-hmm. on like what exactly happened or. Yeah. So it's more of just like the unknown and like trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure you out and you're trying to figure them out. So it is a like connection. Mm-hmm. 
connection and trying to understand the unknowable. I did not expect this conversation to get this thoughtful, get so deep, so intimate. In my normal life, I actually have a pretty hard time warming up to strangers. But with this group, we quickly settled into an ease with each other. Julie and I never did end up connecting with the paranormal. But that's okay, because these connections with people were real. The next morning, we were both feeling pretty good. The world was alive with nuance and connection. But we wanted to try one last time to commune with the dead. So, as per Shelley's advice, we made one final stop. Are you rolling? I am. Okay. So, um, we're at the cemetery where the Borden family is buried. The cemetery is a short drive from the house, and it's beautiful. Exactly like any historic graveyard you'd see in a movie. There were the tall obelisks that towered over the lichen-covered name markers set right into the grass. Through the sprawling grounds, it should have been hard to find the Borden's plot. But not only is it tagged on Google Maps, but at nine in the morning, there was already a lot going on at the site that made it hard to miss. And there's already a, a crew here taking pics. Oh my um, I feel like we should give them some space. The crew in question seemed to be a family. And when they drove off in their minivan, we walked over to the Borden's family gravesite. It's a pretty big monument that looks sort of like a giant pond chess piece with brick-sized name markers on the ground beneath. Andrew Borden lies next to Abby, who lies next to her sister Emma, who lies next to Lizzie. It's a little odd to see the family resting together when one of them was accused of violently offing another two. But to be honest, that was not the strangest part of the Borden's gravesite. Oh, oh no. Oh, I'm sorry. With the high noon. Oh my God. With the passion fruit, vodka and soda high noon right there. Yeah, Lizzie's marker looked like the aftermath of a high school party. It was adorned with liquor, like that freshly drunk high noon hard seltzer, and an empty little nip of watermelon Smirnoff. There were also two spent joints in between the I and the Z of her gravestone. But this wasn't arranged in a way that seemed disrespectful. In fact, it felt more like an offering. And it wasn't just for Lizzie. The other graves had stones and shells and dried out flowers honoring the dead. Gross feelings crept back into my mind, but now it was complicated by this strange community and reverence for everyone involved. The old true crime paradox rearing its head again. It was all very confusing. So I did the only thing I could do. Um, I feel like we should do like a moment of silence. Okay. I just wanna just be reflective for a moment. Mm-hmm. Man, I just, what an intense life. And it's kind of incredible that it has such staying power, this story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really, I don't know what it says about us as as humanity, but it says something, something. 
I left Fall River with these complicated feelings, complicated ideas. I still felt weird about glorifying the violence. I mean, why did I take that picture on the couch? Why did I do that? But on the other hand, I was genuinely blown away by the connections made through the living and the dead. It's hard to square, but I'm okay with that. Maybe it's because this story, like all the stories we do, are about people, their complications, their reality, their humanity. Complexity is inherent to those stories, to our experience on this earth. Flatten that complexity and you may miss out on huddling with a bunch of strangers in the middle of a murder house, sharing your reflections on life and just how precious it is. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Julie Carley. Next week, the legendary performer Josephine Baker fights for her rights. She gets up from the table and uh, she heads to the telephone. She calls her attorney and she calls someone in the local NAACP. And she basically says, I'm being discriminated against. This is against the law in New York State. Uh, I want something done about this. Our associate producers are Ramoy Phillip and Nick Del Rose. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Zakia Gibbons and Andrea B. Scott. Ben Brighton read newspaper headlines. The Lizzie Borden took an axe nursery rhyme was directed by Jason Ashofen. Recording session produced by Aaron Kenny. Singers, Hasitha Ramanathan, Aaron Dambry, Olivia Kaiser, Giselle Badorf, Avery Walker, and Mia Walker. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Joe Radza, Carol Ann Shogi, Jared, Jack, and Emily from the historic Lizzie Borden House, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzika, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ella Walsh, Ariel Joseph, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I've actually reenacted that with a cantaloupe. It's a long time, 19 wax, with a lot of time to think what you're doing while you repeat that motion over and over and over. And it has to be driven by motivation that's very, very personal to do that to another human being.